C'è la luna mezza mare, mamma mia, mamma redare. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, the Hollywood Godfather podcast. I'm coming from New York City. My co-host, Pat Picciarelli, and my co-author of my book, Hollywood Godfather, is in Pennsylvania. And our millennium, Megan, is down the Jersey Shore, where she belongs. Now we're going to take you to Los Angeles, California, to a guy that you all know. I know him many, many years. And... He and I had a relationship with a man that most people don't even know how long I knew him, Frank Frank Sinatra, our guest, Tom Dreesen. Tom, congratulations on the book, man. Johnny Russo, I'm testing your your senility. (laughs) Okay. Tell me where we met. I know exactly where we met. When I tell you, it'll, it'll, it'll blow your mind. I, I, myself, I would think it would be Caesar's Palace. You know where we met? In 1975, I was doing a TV show up in Canada called The Tommy Banks Show in Edmonton, Canada. I was on the show with you, now that you're saying it, yeah. yeah but you, and your, your, your conductor in those days was, I think, Jimmy Castro? Yeah. Was that? No, um, no uh, Castro, Castro. Have you said Cuban kid, nice kid. What yeah. was his first name? I'll think of it in a minute, but the reason why I how it happened you were across the room, and I was sitting in a big green room, and Castro said, hello, hey, Tommy, how you doing? Because he, I had o- opened for Jimmy Rogers. Remember, it's, you know, Honeycomb. Oh, know, yeah, sure. And he was his conductor. Right. So he waved at me, and you said, who's that? And he said, oh, he's a guy from Chicago. And you said to me, hey, how are all the guys in Chicago? That, that's how we started. That was the first time I met you. And another time, you and I did a show in Atlantic City with a guy named Pinky something, and me, you, and Pat Cooper were on the show. Oh, wow, uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, Pat, of course, got everybody pissed off at him, <laughs> <laughs> as Pat loves to do. Anyhow, Johnny, it's good to see you again. I'm oh, great. I can't wait to read your book. Oh, I, it's so much fun. I'm having so much fun. It's called, you know what? Well, yeah, you know, please. Called, Plug the book, yeah. man. It's called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. It's, you know, you can get it on Amazon. <laughs> Yeah, Amazon's been good to Pat and I. Oh, yeah. Very good. Our book is in seven countries. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's really uh, it's been, been good to me. And in this background, by the way, there's an artist in Buenos Aires named Marcelo Nira that took a, a, a painting, did a painting. This is a painting of Frank and I on stage. You know, he would always call me back to take another bow in the, in the 14 right. years I toured with him. Uh, when we were casinos, especially, you right. know, he would call me back out and say, "Jake, you know, and he took he took a picture, but painted this painting behind it." So that's my backdrop. You know, that's, that's great. It. Now, why not? It promotes the book. It does it all. Yeah, but you know, we're not, I'm interested in. I, I once Barbara, you know, I, I had a big history with Barbara Sinatra, Barbara Marks, and uh, her and I never liked each other, even when she was at the Riviera Hotel. So when she got with Frank, I was out of the picture, as you know she could do. And even though Frank baptized my son Luciano at, at Mateo's in, in Vegas, I mean in uh, L.A., that was the end of it. And you spent the last years of his life together. I don't know if you know how I met Frank. Frank and I, I was in, I was in a polio ward. In fact, this is my second pandemic. On uh, August 7th, 1949, I got polio. They put me in, in Bellevue. And my birthday was coming up, and Carlo Gambino's niece gave me a transistor radio on December 11th, the night before my birthday. Hmm. And that morning, I put the radio on. I heard that Sinatra, it was his birthday. He's from Hoboken. and. About four years later, I met him when I was picked up by Frank Costello. I did all his errands for the Copa. And there was Frank doing a sound check. And I told him the story, and a tear came to his eye. And that's how long I know Frank, Sin- Frank Sinatra. Is that weird? Uh, In the birthday. 50s. Yeah. Same birthday. But the last years, and our guest is Tommy Dreesen, for you who don't know him, he was the opening act for Sinatra's, what, last seven, eight years, Tom? No, 14, the last 14 really? years. Really, 14, in, wow. In, in 45, 50 cities a year, 
you know, and uh, it was it was a great experience. I, I, I had been, you know, I'd been doing a lot. I had done over 40 Tonight Shows when I met Frank. I toured with Sammy for three years, Sammy Davis. I, you know, I did work with Dean, did some gigs with Dean, did the Dean Martin roast. So, you know, I, I, I was, and, and then I, I toured, after Sammy, I toured with Smokey Robinson for years and Dick Gladys Knight and the Pips and Natalie Cole and, and um, uh, you know, Jimmy Darren, James Darren, you know, Jimmy and, and oh, Frankie yeah. And um, Matt Davis I, and Tony Orlando and Don, I was just touring with everybody, you know, because uh, I was doing so many Tonight Shows and television shows where you had to work clean. You know, you couldn't get on TV in those days unless you could do material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. Right. So you, you had to write that kind of material. And and so uh, these artists that I just mentioned, they had family audiences. They wanted you to open up the show, set up the crowd, get them up, but not offend them, you know. So you didn't want somebody, as you know, in the business called that somebody could work blue, you know. Right. So I was doing a lot of that work. And then um, I was at Caesars in Lake Tahoe with Smokey Robinson. And Frank was appearing at Harris next door. And I had worked Harris many times with Sammy and, and Mac Davis and stuff. So <clears throat> I called over to the maitre d'. When I come off stage one night, I wanted to run into the showroom and catch Frank. Because I had seen Frank perform a couple of times. And, I, you know, was a Frank Sinatra fan, of course, being Italian and being from the south side of Chicago. You know, what else are you going to be? But anyhow, uh, I, I came off stage one night uh, at Caesars and I just rushed right over to Harris. As you know, it's only a couple of doors away. Right. And I ran in, I was running into the showroom and out in the lobby was uh, Holmes Hendrickson, the vice president of Harris Hotel. And he, he was standing with a guy, a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And so as I was running into the showroom, he said, Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. I love when Frank Sinatra walked out on the stage. He electrified the audience before he even sang a note. Just his, just walking to the microphone, he created more excitement than most people do with their whole act. You know, he, right. he just mm -hmm. had that, as you know, that kind of energy. So I was rushing into the showroom, and Holmes Hendrickson said, "Tommy, come here." And I went over, and he said, "Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin." Well, I recognize. Oh my name. God! Hello. This is a lawyer for years. Yeah, for years. So I knew, and, and so he said, "Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra." And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he had heard that a million times. And he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. And he said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> 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 He started laughing, you know. And uh, he said, hey, I like this kid. And a week later, they called me and said, would you like to do one week with Frank Sinatra at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City? And I thought, yeah, great. I'll try to get my picture taken with it, hang it in every bar back in Chicago, and then that's it. You know, but it, the second night I was with him, uh, he took me out to dinner. He and his wife Barbara, and in the middle of the meal, I can remember like it was yesterday. He set his knife and his fork down, and he said, "I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested." And I didn't say, "Let me check my calendar." You know, I said, "Yeah, right." Yeah, that's it. And so it turned into 14 years, 45, 50 cities a year. And, and a friendship that I'll, uh, that you know, I, I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and I spoke at his funeral. Right. And and at first he was like the boss, because he was the boss of the career, at the tour. I mean, he was the boss, and he was like a boss. And then halfway through that, he became like a buddy, because I'd hang out with him all night long and stay at his compound like five, six times a year. And then toward the end of his life, he became like a father to me. He started giving me advice like a father. And, and again, it's a friendship that I, I will treasure to my grave, and I, and I miss him every day, you know. Oh yeah, he's that kind of guy. Yeah, you know, as long as I'm, as you know, I mean, he's a bad drunk late at night. But other than that, go to bed early. You say, why don't you hang out now? Nah, I'm going to go. <laughs> he he gets, never went to bed till the sun came up. And all the years I was with him, whether we were on the road or off the road, and and he wants you to hang with him, you know. Right. And, and that, that's fun for about ten years. But then, you know, it, it really got. And then you see, you know, I was a bartender before I was ever in show business, and I used to say my buddies in the bar and the south side of Chicago, you'd serve two drinks and break up a fight and serve two drinks and break up a fight. But my buddies would go through the three hours when they were drinking. You know, they, 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 they'd be different. Some guys would have a couple of drinks and they'd turn into uh, Rocky Marciano, they want to fight everybody in the joint, you know. Or mm -hmm. they'd have a couple of drinks and they'd turn into Rudolph Valentino and they want to bang everybody in the joint, you know. And then they'd, or they'd turn into Rip Van Winkle and it just made them sleepy, you know. But Frank was the first, he, he, a couple of drinks and he became Rocky Marciano. Oh, I know. Why the crew liked me to hang out with them because I, both my parents were alcoholic. I was a bartender. I grew up in bars and saloons. I could spot when he was starting to get that way, 
and I'd quick say, hey, Frank, tell me that story that time you and Dean when you were doing that charity, and I would switch. I could always get him turned around, you know. Right. But every now and then, every now and then, he would get that, that anger thing. And uh, But I never... I remember one, one fun night. Uh, we had been on the road doing one-nighters all over the country. And now we pulled into Vegas, and we were at the Desert Inn. And we did two shows that night. And the second show, after the second show, we started hanging out. Now it's 4.30 in the morning, and he's going strong. There's like four or five of us at the table. And I got up. I got up, and I started hitting. He said, hey, where are you going? I said, I'm going to bed. He said, what for? I said, I got to get up early in the morning and go to the cemetery and visit those guys. He said, what guys? I said, all those guys who died trying to stay with you every night. <laughs> <laughs> he laughed he said go to bed but he made me tell that story all the time uh, no yeah I mean, when I opened State Street him Dean and Sammy did all my commercials before they did anybody's commercials yeah. and he used to when he left the stage at night he said we're all on the way over to State Street come over and they'd stayed until 7 8 in the morning yeah, you should. I'm sure your audience knows. Which, tell them what State Street was all about. Or for those who are turning in for the first time. Oh no, but they know, man. No, my audience. They read my book. Believe me. <laughs> no, State Street was the club for a long, long time, and then because of people like him and Don Rickles and everybody hung there. Fortunately, but uh, and of course, of course, I, that's, I'm from Chicago, so we love that title. State oh Street. yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I'm I'm very heavy in Chicago yet. I have a big business in Chicago. I'm there once a month. I, I, I get into the food business, and I'm out in Brewster, and uh, I got about 17,000 square foot of warehouse out there with the Greco, Greco and Sons. They're huge out there. I love I love you know going back home. I, I hang out at Gibson's all the time. That's oh, I love it. Yeah. Which one, downtown or near the airport? No, well, both of them, but really downtown. Steve Lombardo, my buddy, owns oh, yeah. the, the Gibson's in so I hang out there whenever. You know, and when I was with Frank, we would, every year we'd go to Chicago. One, one year we'd do the Chicago Theater. Next year, the Rosemont Horizon. Next year, the Auditorium Theater. The Erie Crown Theater. The New World Theater. A different, you know, and, and every night after that show, we'd head straight to Gibson's. Right. And have something to eat there and then go down to the pump room and hang out till they'd lock up everybody. Couldn't let everybody in. And we'd sit in the back until dawn, until the sun came up yeah. and we'd sit in tell stories and by the way that booth that we hang out in is still there at the ambassador hotel and the and they got a big picture of frank in that back booth where he hung right. every night till dawn you know long before he was meeting uh before he came even into chicago i used to meet sydney Korshak and tony ocado there i was 16. <laughs> sydney Korshak, for those who don't know was a powerful powerful yeah. powerful there was a great book written called The Jewish Mafia. It's about it's just it's about as big as uh, four Bibles, you know. And uh, but it, it was about how they controlled the film industry out here. Oh my God, yeah. And, and how 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 you know they'd call in the producers of a film. They're going to do a film, and they call the producers in and say, you know, you're going to have a lot of problems with the union, but a hundred thousand cash, and we're going to take care of that. You will have the film. Meanwhile, there was no problem with anybody, and then no, they used to create it. They yeah. that's why there's never been a strike in yeah. in California. They still yeah. run it. I mean, forget about. It. I mean, we can go on on and on about that. So I, I'd like to get into your book, because me being an author now, Pat's Pat's written so many books, but having the book out, what what for our audience, what are they going to learn about Sinatra? That no one knows. You well, were with them. For, yeah, first, first of all, the book is really my journey. It's called Still Standing because obviously I've been a stand up comedian for 50 years and I've been knocked down a lot in my life and I keep getting back up. You know, uh, I boxed when I was in the service, so I got knocked down a few times there too. But, but, I, but I keep getting back up and, and, and my, that's what the book is about. It's a journey. You know, it's called My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. When I was a little boy, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack on the south side of Chicago, a suburb called Harvey, Illinois. And steel mills and factories, and they made everything from clutch plates to crankshafts and taverns. We had 36 taverns. My mother was a bartender. And I shined shoes in all the taverns. I had eight brothers and sisters. And to help feed my brothers and sisters, I would go from bar to bar every night in the snow with my shoeshine box. So when I was in those bars, Frank Sinatra was on the jukebox singing. And so the journey is, this little boy from the south side of Chicago hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox 
to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. Wow. So it's that journey. Good Shepherd Church. Oh. I know it well. Yeah, a, a lady of Good Shepherd. Anyhow, so it's, it's it, it, I've, all my life, I've viewed everywhere I've been, and I've been very fortunate to do, yeah, I did over 500 appearances on national television, 61 appearances on the Tonight Show, hosted David Letterman, did the, but I never thought of myself as, as an entertainer. I'm a comedian, I'm a, I'm a funny guy, but I always saw myself, if I closed my eyes, if I was in Frank Sinatra's jet or at, at his compound or on the road with Sammy, whatever, if I close my eyes, I see a little boy with a shoe shine box going in the snow from bar to bar, trying to make enough money to feed his brothers and sisters. I'm never far away from that, that kid. That's who, and that's what this book is about. Is that that's a good way to be, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to be. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I really, you know, I, I think that we do, you know, that, you know, those who grew up like that never really forget that. I remember Anthony Quinn one time saying in an interview that if you've ever been hungry, he said, really hungry as a kid, not hungry, and I'm going to eat in a couple hours. Hungry, and you don't know if you're ever going to eat again. That never leaves your subconscious mind, that hunger. And when I was a kid, there were times there was no food for days. I and mean, we just, we lived in a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. No bathtub, no shower, no hot water. And it wasn't during the Depression. I'm not that old, you know, but, but I'm close, but I'm not that old. But when I went in the Navy, when I first went in the service, I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old, and I ran with the tough street guys and got in a lot of street fights. Nothing I'm proud of and stuff, but I finally got a chance to go in the Navy. My probation officer let me go in the Navy. And for the first time in my life, I was equal to everybody. They shaved all of our heads. We all had the same uniforms. And I had a, a bed with clean sheets. I could take a shower and let as much hot water flow on me as, as, as ever before in my life. I never had that experience, three hot, hot meals a day. So it sort of changed my life. It dramatically changed my life. And that's what this book is about, of all the ups and downs. When I came out of the service, <laughs> I wandered aimlessly. You know, I, I worked on loading docks. I was a teamster, and then I dropped my card, and I became a, a foreman of these teamster guys, and, and what it was like doing that. And then I was a private detective, and then, I, you know, I, I ran with some pretty bad guys, and but it's all about that. And then I met, I was in a civic group called the JCs, in those days, Junior Chamber of Commerce. And I, I, they, they attacked the problems of the community, and they taught you leadership, how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, and all that kind of stuff. And I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had to, uh, they weren't teaching drug education in those days at an elementary school, I mean, at a high school level or a college level, let alone at an elementary school level. So helping me with this project is a young black guy named Tim Reed. And both of us were just young guys, you know, and I just got out of the service and, and, uh, and he had just graduated college. The Vietnam War was raging and African-Americans were rioting in every city in the country, not unlike it is today. I mean, it was, it was that seriousness in that era, and I know you guys remember. But anyhow, uh, so we went in the, in, the, in the grade schools, and we started teaching kids the ills of drug abuse. But first, we made them laugh. We joked off of one another. We played records. And the program became very successful. One day, a little eighth-grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black and white team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. So we became America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. Uh, and it was called Tim and Tom. We, we did, there were no comedy clubs in those days. So we worked what they call the Chitlin Circuit, black owned, black operated nightclubs. You know, um, the 20 Grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Spear, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City before they ever had gambling. You know. So, and, and we stayed together like six years, went to all kinds of hell as being the first black and white comedy team uh, and, and uh, paid a lot of dues. And that's in the book too. But then one day the team stood up and uh, I ended up on the West Coast, had a wife and three kids and uh, all kinds of hardships. The wife wrote me three dear Johns and she didn't, she hated show business. And, but I, I finally, I went to the, I hitchhiked to the comedy store every night, begging to work for free, you know, and uh, I finally got on one night and and I, I ended up being on the regular schedule after a while. And I, I hustled the Tonight Show to come and see me. And I finally got on the Tonight Show. And then I never, I did that first appearance on the Tonight Show. I never stopped working from that day on. I, I, I've been fortunate. But a lot of struggles even afterward. But but it, it's, that's what the book is about. It's about triumph. It's about overcoming. As you guys know, in show business, you know, you're, you're knocked around a lot. You're rejected a lot, you know. 
but you keep getting back up and keep uh, you know doing what you do. See, that's why I approached it so different than most. I hear your story, I know, but I, I like you, we know so many performers through the years. Most people don't realize it because of Costello. I made about five or six million dollars and kept it by the time I was 18. <laughs> so when I started pursuing, even like The Godfather making the deal I made to get that movie done, um, it never stopped. But the, the hardships, like even my kids, and I have so many of them, they want to get into show business. I said, well, how much money do you have? They said, what are you talking about? I said, you got to have a lot of money to endure show business, especially today. And you're just the proof of that. That, but that's why you survived, and that's why you made it. It's, it's you know. Well, Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell once said something so profound. He said there are people in show business who become major stars simply because they didn't have sense enough to quit when they should have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tom, uh, aside from your obvious talent, I mean, you've been in this business for fifty years. How much do you think Johnny Carson had to do? in your career there's no this guy what you what you're about to do what you say in 1975 wherever you went in america people say what do you do for a living you say i'm a stand-up comedian the next question out of their mouth was oh yeah you ever been on johnny carson and if you hadn't been on johnny carson in the eyes of america you just weren't a comedian you might want to be one you might going to be one but you weren't one now that show launched 26 million people watched that show that show yeah. launched i can name 50 comedians myself included that show launched you know, it, it, when Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show, got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance on The Tonight Show, and I got a, a deal from CBS, a development deal. A guy named Lee Curlin from New York was watching the show from CBS, and he, he signed me to a development deal. I'm in an apartment that I couldn't even hardly pay the rent. I got a wife and three kids the day before that show. The next day, they signed me to a development deal, gave me $10,000 check and $1,850 a month for a year, which was a lot of money in those days. That meant all my rent, my grocery, everything was paid for for a year that I could focus on my comedy career for the first time after being in the business for about seven years. How old were you then at that time? I was 29. Oh, good. And, and, and uh, it, it, was, it was one of the, it, it's hard to describe that first Tonight Show. You know, first of all, I, I got the Tonight Show. I pestered and pestered them to come and see me, a guy named Craig Tennis. And I finally got on. And that, that when I went there to do it, I got bumped three times. They put you in makeup, take you up to your dressing room, you go down to the green room, you ran out of time. Come back next week. I go back next week, I go in the makeup room, up to the dressing room, down to the green room. We ran out of time. Three times in a row. The fourth time I go there, I go there, and they put me in makeup, I go to the green room, I go in the makeup room, in comes Fred de Cordova. It's the fourth time I'm there. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie was a great guy. Yeah, you get a lump in your throat about the size of a grapefruit. Now, when it's time to go on, Bert Convy was on that night with uh, Carol Burnett. And when Bert Convy was singing the song, they came and got me out of the green room. They said, you know, you're going on next. Now, they take you down that long walk all the way out of the green room, all the way around to the back curtain on the way there. When you're a veteran on The Tonight Show, as I became later, the stage hands would say, hey, Dreesen, how's your Cubs? How's everybody in Chicago? You know, that kind of variety. But your first time, they see you coming, and they all turn their back on you, and they whisper, it's his first time. It's his first time, you know. <laughs> so, they, so now you go behind that curtain. The coordinator said, are you all right? You say, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then he leaves you alone, and all of a sudden, you're going, I, I can't remember the first line. Oh. Oh God, please don't leave me alone here. You know, you're talking to God on one, you know. And I'm usually a comedy performer. I love stand-up comedy, but the, the 26 million people watching this show. Everybody in our industry watched this show. And my mother had everybody back in the South Side of Chicago. <laughs> if I bomb, I can't even go back home. You know. Now the, the Doc Severinsen's playing because they're because they're in commercial break, and now the music stops and your heart stops because you're on live. And you hear Johnny say, We're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest makes his first appearance on The Tonight Show. That one line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. Tony sets him up. Welcome to, you walk out there and it's like you're in an operating room. You can't see the audience and, and, and bright lights in your face. You hit your mark and I start doing my first joke and gets a laugh. Then my second joke, I laugh. Then my third joke. Now I hear Johnny and Ed laughing behind me. Now I'm on a roll. I got about eight applause. I closed. I said, you're in a wonderful audience. Show business is a tough life. If you like me, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say the prayer. 
If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me, will you? <laughs> <laughs> Did you get to sit down? No, I walked through the curtain because he told me to go back. I go through the curtain and the coordinator come running around Craig Tennis. He said, go back, go back. I said, go back and sit by Johnny. He said, no, don't go sit by Johnny. Just go. So I went back through the curtain and the audience still applauding. And Johnny did that little, he always go like this, right. like this. And and uh, and, and my, I never, I did 61 appearances on a tiny show, but I never stopped working since. God bless Johnny Carson. I, I thank him every day of my life. No. He's a good man. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, all the careers he made, my God, forget it. It's yeah, amazing. well, again, you know, see, when you when you did that show, we're in show business. That's two words in those days, show and business. What's the business? Which remind me, remind me, Johnny, I want to tell you a Sinatra story about the business, but, but because it's really profound that you'll love. But anyhow, you know, how do you get on that show? So I'd watch the show. Well, you got to write material that can make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. You, there was no cable television then, so you, I can work bluers. And, I mean, I... I'm, I'm, I don't have a degree from academia. I have a doctorate from the streets. I'm a street kid. I can do a stag roast with the best of them, but I couldn't make any money doing that kind of material to get on TV. So when cable came along, then everybody got us blue, you know. I mean, there, there's women comics on cable today that would make Red Fox blush, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, but, I, but I, I mean, I can do that, but there was no money in it for me. To, I, you know. But here, let me tell you a quick story about Frank about the business, Johnny, that you'll love. You, I mean, you'll all love it. He said to me one time, he said, Tommy, there was a time in show business that I was as hot as I could be. He said, I was so hot, Tommy, that I could call any recording studio in the country and they'd take my call. I could call any agent, they'd take my call. Producers, he said, Tom, I could call the president of the United States and they would take my call. He said, and then I got cold. I got really cold for a while, for a few years, and I couldn't get people to take my call. He said, I would call, I couldn't get people to answer the phone. He said, then I got hot again. He said, now I'm hot, and I'd go to a social function, I'd look across the room, and there's a guy that wouldn't take my call. And I'd look at him, and he couldn't look me in the eye. He'd put his head down like this. He said, but what he didn't understand is, I now understood. He said, we're in show business. That's two words, show and business. I couldn't do business with him anymore. That's why he didn't take my call. He said, it's my fault. I thought we were friends. Yeah. There you go. What a profound line. I never Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. my fault. I thought we were friends. <laughs> How many managers in Asia and stuff like that you go through before you learn that lesson? That's wild. And uh, the, the last engagement you had with Sinatra, where was that? His last performance. It was in, in, in um, February. I think it's February 28, 19. 95 we were at the marriott hotel and desert uh palm desert and he hadn't sung in months and he wasn't quite he wasn't well and and uh we didn't know whether we were going on the road again or not for four months he hadn't sung and now it was the barbara it was a, a frank sinatra's golf tournament oh i know a black tie affair down in the desert and i went on and i did 20 minutes and then i introduced him and he came out and uh he was supposed to sing three songs because, you know, just for the charity. And he ended up doing six songs because the audience couldn't get enough of them. He got standing ovation after standing ovation after standing ovation. And finally, the last song he sang was The Best Is Yet To Come. And that's on his tombstone, The Best Is Yet To Come, Francis Albert Sinatra, because that's the last song he sang. Now, he came off stage. They were still cheering. And he looked at me. He said, don't put away that suitcase. And I thought, oh, great, we're going on the road again. Yeah. But we didn't. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he became more and more ill. And I would go visit him all the time, and we, he liked to watch the fights. You know, his dad boxed right. the name of Marty O'Brien, as you know, and, and had the tavern in Hoboken called Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill. That Frank grew up in the saloon, you know, singing for the sailors. He, he told me they'd put a nickel in their little piano roll. And, and Dolly was it. a barmaid there for a while. Yeah. Well, she, his wife, yeah. yeah. I mean, his mother, she also was a, a precinct captain and, and a tough right. a tough lady, you know. Yeah. She once blackjacked a guy. That's another story I'll tell you some other time. But anyhow, he, he, uh, he you know, see, he, as I kept going to see him, he, he was getting not well and more and more. And finally, no one ever brought up the fact, was he going to sing again? And I went to see him one time in, in June, and, and he, we were talking, sitting there, and he wasn't well. He had like a blanket on him. He was sitting down, 
and I was getting ready to go. He said, where are you going, Tommy? I said, well, my ex-wife is in town, and the kids want us to get together. He said, oh, I'll give them all the rest, will you? I said, yeah. And he said to me, you know, I, I, I love you, Tommy. Now, when he said that, it blew me away because he never, ever said that to me. He would sock me on the jaw. He'd say, love you, pal. He'd give me a little sock. say, love you, pal. And, and with this moment, I, he said to me, I, I said, he said, give him all my best. I said, I will. He said, you know, I love you, Tommy. And I, I got taken aback. And I was stuttering. I, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know what made me say it. I said, hey, get well, and, and we'll go back on the road again. And when I said it, I could have bit my tongue. I said, get well, we'll go back on the road again. And he put his hand on my cheek. He said, you're going to have to go on the road by yourself from now on, Tommy. And that's when I knew that he knew he yeah. was never going to sing again. And it really got to me. And, you know, to see the great Frank Sinatra, this man that I opened for for years, electrifying audiences of 20,000 people. And in Hawaii, 40,000 people. And, and just electro. And now to say to me, you're going to have to go on the road by yourself, that I knew he knew he wasn't going to sing again. And I went out to the car and I was kind of choked up. And I had tears in my eyes. And Barbara came out. She said, I'd be all right. I said, yeah. I said, yeah, that was, oh, that was pretty tough. She said, I know. She said, keep coming to see him, Tommy. He gets a big kick out of it. So I, I kept going to see him after. But, you know, he, he was never quite the same. You know, some nights he was, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you the end of this story. On his 82nd birthday, I went over to the house. He died five months later. And uh, oh, the family was all there, not, not, not kids, but his friends, you know, Greg Beck and his wife, Veronique, right. and um, yeah, it was Kirk Douglas and his wife, Ann, and, and, um, and Jack Lemon and his wife, Felicia, and the Robert Wagner, Joe St. John, and uh, Angie Dickinson. And, and, we had dinner and they were waiting for the cake to come out and Frank was off to the side and Vine, the black woman who took care of him for years, was helping him eat and all that. And he was off to the side and sometimes we weren't sure if he was quite with us or not. And and uh, he was just eating and so somebody brought up small talk waiting for the cake to come out. Somebody said, where's the best place to live? And Gregory Peck said, well, Veronique and I have a villa in France and we like it there. And Robert Wagner and Joe St. John said, we have a place in Aspen, we like it there. And Frank off to the side with his head down said, the best place to live is where your friends are. And everybody went, oh yeah. They turned around and said, yeah, yeah. And my point of that is, here's a man, arguably the greatest career show business has ever known. Academy Awards, you know, Grammys. Here's a guy that had it all. And in the end, it wasn't about any of those things. It was about relationships. Yeah. You know, that's the last lesson that Frank Sinatra ever taught me. I just got a chill, yeah. man. Yeah. That was beautiful. Story time. Thank well, you. Tom, thank you so much for giving us this time, man. We wish you great luck with the book. And uh, see you on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, I don't know if that's ever going to happen again. Our business, you know, our business, in order for you to survive, we need them all together, the, our comedians, especially the audience together. Because so, we're energy going out to the audience and back to us. It's like an electrical current. Uh -huh. If you tell me to go on stage and put five people over here and six over there and five over there, that electrical current's gone. Well, fortunately, I, I did my last show March 7th, and they canceled. I had eight more for the Mohegan Sun, all their properties. So uh, they came up with a brilliant idea because I made a musical out of my book. It's oh, a one-man show, and it has all the film clips and all. So I'm able to do... What they're doing for me right now, I'm doing three one-nighters for only a hundred high rollers each for the three nights. What a great idea! And we they're do, loving do, it. I do a one-man show called the, "An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra," or sometimes I call it "The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh." And it's 90 minutes. I do stand-up comedy, right. but then I go to a bar and I segue over to a bar and I tell a funny joke. All the lights go out, and then Frank comes on the screen singing. You know, it's quarter to three. There's oh, no that's movies. great. Yeah, so then when the light hits me, when he finished song the light hits me, I you know, I, I take them on this journey with a lot of stories I just told you. Right. And, and and but a lot of funny stories too and poignant stories. And I end it with the funeral and, and, and have the audience in tears almost, but then well, I, I wouldn't around. do that. <laughs> I do a funny monologue at the end. I, I close with a joke that I told in the church that he want I knew he wanted me to make people laugh. So I, I tell them the joke I told in church, a story about Frank and I, and it got a big laugh in the church. And, um, and anyhow, so then, then I, I toast them with a little Jack Daniels and I say, I close, I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you. The very last song he ever sang is that the best is yet to come. Good night, everybody. And you hear Frank singing, the best is yet to come. Wow. Oh, wow. Great show. 
You know, yeah. I'll tell you something, because I know you were there the next day, and uh, Barbara took me off the list, and my son Luciano loved that his, grandf his godfather was Sinatra. So the Monsignor, because I got married in that church twice, baptized my kids. So when they were when, when in there the night after the rosary, and they decorated the, the church with all the gardenias and all that, yeah, they let me go in. And oh, really? Gave my oh. farewells to Sinatra. Oh, with my son, Luciano, yeah. who's now yeah. 27. That's when he, <laughs> he baptized him. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, they always say that, that the people always say to me, you know, he, they were, he was one of a kind. He was he was the first of his kind and he was the last of his kind. They oh, yeah. Would, oh, they'll like never him. have somebody like him again. <clears throat> no, and it's just it's just not even it's even hard to explain, you know, that that he was larger than life. Yep. You know, forget about all the. I know we're you're wrapping up your show here. I'm sorry. Oh no, but no, please go ahead. The greatest pop singer of all time. Forget about that. You know what a brilliant actor he won the Academy Award. He never took an acting lesson. One night I'm sitting with Clint Eastwood, with Gregory Peck, with Jack Lemmon, with with Kirk Douglas, and they're talking film. We're in the back at Frank's compound, and I'm fascinated. These are people I've seen on the film on the movies all my life, and I'm so fascinated with their conversation. But I'm also fascinated with the reverence they're showing to Frank Sinatra. Oh my these God, yeah. learned actors. And so i curious, I said, Frank, did you ever study acting? Because I was curious who he studied with. I said, did you ever study acting? And Gregory Peck got my arm hard. He said, ah, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. Right. This guy danced with Gene Kelly, for Christ's sake. He, 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 you know, he won the Academy Award from Henry Trinity. He should have won it in The Man with the Golden Armor. How about a movie called Suddenly, right. a, a Manchurian Candidate? Right. He was larger than life, and, and, and on top of all that was his connections. And was he with those guys? Was he not with them? Oh, I mean, yeah, it was the mystique. Yeah, all the mystique. When Frank Sinatra appeared in Las Vegas, the drop in the pit was enormous. Oh. It was five times more than any other artist that would appear there, the, the, the high rollers. Yep. And, and I'll close with this. He once said in an interview when he was a kid, a young singer, what does it take to become you know, a, a, a star in singing? He said... As a male, he said that young women want to make love to you. Older women want to mother you. Little kids wish you were their dad. And the guys want to hang out with you. That's right. Most singers, I have three of those qualities, but the guys want to hang out with you. The, all the high rollers in the world would come from, from China. Everywhere. This guy sold out in Japan. He sold out in, in Argentina. He sold out all over the world. 175,000 people came to see him in Brazil. 175,000. You know, the guys wanted to be where Frank was. Oh, and the yeah. high rollers Anyhow. It's all good. Well, yeah. congratulations on the book, and thank you for giving you, uh, you time for to spend with us. I, mean, I appreciate it. We all do. Well, thank you very I love, much. I love to be here. Yeah, Tom. Thank you. This I love has been fascinating, too. really. Okay, Can't wait John, to read your book. I hope we see you. Thank you. Oh, let no. me know. <laughs> Johnny, let me, let me know. Maybe one day we can work together somewhere down the line, God willing. All right, please. Good. All right, thank you. Okay, Johnny, take right. care. Right, nice Thank you there. so much, Tom. Great to meet you. Bye. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's go to the news bag. Let's see what's happening now bag. in our life out there. We're switching up the, the name of it this week. Okay. Keeping you guys on your toes. I, I, what, what is it? You know, I'm old. You got to... You know. That's all right. We can go along. We can go along. The mailbag, right? The news. Yeah, there we go. There we go. All right. First one is from George. George says, thank you for your excellent book, which has clarified the history of my life. Wow. Marilyn Monroe's birthday, JFK dress was said to be purchased by Howard Hughes. Why did Hughes get involved with Lawford to do this? Lawford was dropped by Frank Sinatra and Kennedy's info question. Yeah, I mean, that's right. He's right. I mean, after the Kennedy election, they were going to kill Peter Lawford and Sinatra because Peter, along with Sinatra, promised Sam Giancana that they controlled Senator John F. Kennedy at that time, and obviously that didn't happen. And the mistake he made was Big Bobby as Attorney General. But Hughes, mm. I don't know how Hughes got him, but he got him. All right, next one is from Antonio. Hi guys, great podcast as always, keep up the good work. My question is for Gianni. I would like to know if the notoriety you got after being in The Godfather and other movies ever caused any problems for you afterwards when working with the mob. By that I mean, did you ever bring any unwanted attention to the mob when running deeds such as the Vatican money laundering period, and did this strain your relationship with them? Thanks. You know, it's, it's funny because The Godfather, 
I've gotten more notoriety in the last 20 years from The Godfather. Now that it's streaming, it's on cable. But when The Godfather came out, most people don't realize it was in the theaters. Then about a year later, it was a movie of the week. And then it disappeared for five or six, seven, eight years. Nobody saw it because it was one, you know, one dimensional. TV had four channels and what was played in the theaters was a new movie. I think I get more notoriety now, even after the book, like you just pointed out. I've been, I'm, well, last week I had over 8,800,000 views collectively on what I've done that week. That's huge. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, thank God. Thank God is right. All right, next is from Eric. Eric says, hey guys, love the show. What is the theme song played at the beginning? What, do you ever go to a feast? Cella luna menza mara mamma mia mamma That's the theme song. I think it's changed a few times, but I think that's oh, yeah. the current one. Oh, that's, right? I don't know. Well, that's my It used to be Speak Softly Love. That was the, yeah, we the early that episodes. Out, I think. <laughs> we wore that out. <laughs> that is, all of that is on my album Reflections, though, just so you know. So you'll be hearing it. Exciting stuff. All right, next is from Nathan from Australia. We get a lot of messages from Nathan. I know. He says, I just finished your and Pat's book. It was a thoroughly entertaining, and I hope for a follow-up. After the Joe Pistone infiltration of the Bonanno family, was there any talk amongst the other families about what had happened that you know of? And were you aware that that any were you aware of any changes in how other families operated in the aftermath? Pat could attest to this just by his experience on NYPD. It's a situation. Well, I, I, I was in touch with uh, Joe Piston the last time was about a year ago. We were talking about uh, a, a project he's doing. He asked me something. Uh, other than that, he's still living under an assumed name in an undisclosed location. So how, how long is this? 40 years, Jenny? Yeah. So what I was about to say, uh, you could clarify that nothing's changed with that and how that families, how the families work. So, I mean, uh, that's been going on for generations and generations. If you're really close enough. He, he, he operates in the open. He's got a production company. He, uh, he's been around, but he keeps a pretty low profile. He's got a partner who's a, a former police officer. He, he, he does all the front work. He, he's the outside guy. Yeah. No, but I mean, hmm. no, I wouldn't, you know, it, it, it's business as usual. All right. Next, next one is from George. George says, love the book, love the podcast. Just wondering if there is any mob connections to Northeast Pennsylvania, especially Scranton, Wilkesbury area. And if you have ever been in the area or have any stories from there. Also, do you all have any plans of coming to the United Kingdom anytime soon. I would love to be your personal tour guide. God bless, Stacey. Invite us. We'll show up. Watch, <laughs> watch what you say. We'll be there. No, I I'm, I'm definitely want to go to London. I'm, I've been invited to uh, Ireland. And um, so we're just trying to put something together. I did a great show two weeks ago in London for an hour and a half and got great reviews on that and still getting mail from there. So we'll be coming. If you want the three Great. of us to come, arrange it. We'll go. Across your so how about the yeah, how about the north northeast Pennsylvania, Scranton, Wilkesbury? You know anything about that? I know about that, but that's totally to me there's the days of Adi You know, as as you know, I think Pat can verbalize it better than anybody. He's done it several times. Anybody who wants to be a made guy, they just walk around and tell people they're made guy. Yeah. After Buffalino died, uh, he was working out of Harrisburg. Uh, organized crime became disorganized crime. Uh, mm -hmm. it, just anymore around here after he passed away, there was a thing in 88. Right. The only that's uh, fairly close to organized is uh, Philly. Right. Not going anywhere. That's because they're close to New York. Yeah. But it'll be out of business, too. And Philly is connected very heavily to New York. Yeah. So that's they'll always be there. Hmm. All right, next one is from Lena, and I think this ties in well with the uh, topic that we just covered and our guest. Lena says, Gianni, if you could describe your best interaction with Frank Sinatra, what would it be? Oh, so many. 
later on as he matured, well, the best, the best one I think, and we spoke about it in the book, and I do it in my show, was going to his house and spending those three days just one-on-one -on -one and him teaching me how to sing and then getting drunk on the third night and him just getting so in-depth about Ava and how much he loved her and what the lyric of All the Way meant to him. I mean, that, that's sharing things that are, you know, so amazing. As our guest did tonight, as we're following him up with this mailbag, Mr. Dreesen gave us a lot of input on Sinatra in the later years. In fact, he, right. brought, he brought Pat to tears with a story. Nice. Just to chill, man. I mean, he could tell a hell of a story. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, next one is from Gino. Gino says, Patrick, what is something that most people wouldn't know about you? That's a great answer. What did you say? You know, I'm, I'm a pretty, uh, pretty uh, fairly open guy, but I do like my privacy, I guess. Uh, I've been asked to do a lot of things that I basically turned down. I I don't know. I'm, the, I, I, the older I guess I, 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 I get, I'm very happy writing my books and keeping my close friends close, and uh, that's it. And your enemy's closer. Now, you know, I don't I'm know where I got that out. line from, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, there isn't any, anything surprising. Okay. All right. Just you. All right, next one is from Le Lisa. Gianni, you, uh, you have obviously had very many incredible experiences in your life. On the other hand, what would you say is your most prized possession? Wow. My grandchildren. Hmm. Great answer. How do you put a price on that? Absolutely. Especially my last two. <laughs> oh, so special. All right, next one is from Jeffrey. Jeffrey says, Gianni, I am what one would call an animal lover. Do you have any pets? How about any in the past? I got a lot of pets. Two-legged ones, four-legged ones, fish. <laughs> Permanently, I, have, I mean, presently I have three cats. Tank full of fish all the time. And I was never a dog lover because I was, you know, never had the time to put in. Catch you could leave them alone, and they do for themselves. But I, I, I like animals. Tell everybody about the exotic cat that you have. Oh my God, yeah, it's Sabu, an Indian leopard. I brought Naline Ratad, uh, who's a high accountant in India, for the the Bakri brothers. His little girl wanted a French poodle, so I took it to her, and that's before 9/11. And when I had a kennel, he said, what are you going to do with that kennel now? I said, I don't know. He said, well, let me give you something from here. I said, great, surprise me. So they took me to the airport. They checked it in. They did everything else. And when I got home, it was a black leopard, a cub, that grew to <laughs> 185 pounds, which I kept for How about two years. How long did you years. have it? I had about two years. And then I stopped paying off the ASPCA and the cops so much. I said, you know what? I donated. <laughs> I donated it to the zoo. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, that's it. That's very interesting. I love that. Why doesn't that surprise me though? Everybody has a lot. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> All right. Last but not least is Natalie. Natalie says, Patrick, if there was one celebrity that you would love to meet, that Gianni would know and could get you to meet, who would it be? That's a great question. Yeah. Have to be Marlon Brando. Oh, he's dead. Yeah, Marlon Brando. I would say, yeah. I guess it could be Marlon Brando. Yeah, and, and I could arrange that. <laughs> could have anyway. Just, you know, just to pick the guy's brain. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like I know the guy after our interaction writing the book. We talked mm. about Bill for hours and hours and hours, but that that even wanted me more to sit down with the guy. Right. He, I tell you, out of, out of all the people I did meet, he's one of the top ten and got to be friendly with. Mm -hmm. Well, a great show. Thank you for all yeah. your cards and letters. The reviews, let Megan get elaborate about what, what should they be doing? What, what, what are we missing here? 
What should I? Well, they can do all, they can do a whole lot of things. They can review us on iTunes. You can give us two stars, five stars. I'm sure Gianni wouldn't let, like anything less than five. Um, you can leave us written reviews. You can follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather. You can follow Gianni on Instagram at Real Gianni Russo. We have a Facebook page, and you can get us on Spotify, iTunes. I'm sure you found ways to get here if you're here now. So well, that's all of it. <laughs> thank you all. God bless you all, and stay tuned. We we need you to more keep to listening. Come. Yep. Okay. A all lot right. more to go. Good night, everyone. God bless you all. Stay Goodbye. safe and healthy. Yes. yes, please. All right. Good night, Pat. Good night, John. Good night. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid. You can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be wrong. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night. Hi, I'm Patrick Picciarelli, co-host of the Hollywood Godfather podcast, private investigator, and co-author of Hollywood Godfather, My Life in the Movies and the Mob. How much do you think you know about the infamous Son of Sam serial killings? Or think you know? My new crime novel, Blood Shot Eyes, is a fictionalized version of my real-life private investigation of the Son of Sam case. In this gripping account, based on fact, Private investigator Ray Yale finds himself immersed in this infamous case years after it was supposedly solved by the NYPD and the killer sent to prison for life. Yale uncovers facts which involve a celebrity's involvement and unleash a killer hell-bent on remaining a free man. A psychopathic policewoman, a small-time thief, and a police department cover-up add up to a page-turner of unrelenting suspense. Bloodshot eyes is available exclusively on Amazon.com.